Welcome back, golf fans. We have made it to the FedEx Cup Finals, the Tour Championship. We are going to Atlanta where the players play and out of town. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the Tour Championship, 30-man field, no-cut event. Uh, It's going to be a little different for DFS purposes, but I'm excited to break it down with my trusty co-host, Sia Najat. And Spencer Aguiar, fellas, uh, see how you're doing. I'm good. By the way, nice, nice pull on that quote. I don't know if a lot of people know that song, but uh, just Google it. Just, just Google like the front end of that of that line. Welcome to Atlanta, where the players play, and you'll probably find it. Uh, I'm doing well, man. I, I'm excited to to see how. Honestly, I'm excited to see how you guys are approaching this this final tour championship because i think it's a much different analysis with only 30 people here than it would be a normal tournament i mean captain obvious right but i, I do want to know how you guys attack it but otherwise man it's fantasy football season we were talking before all three of us were talking before about our drafts and dfs and all that stuff of which of course wind daily sports does like an incredible job in, in producing information and data and picks on that but i'm excited man we got golf and football it's overload time now, I actually don't know this, and I, I want to ask both of you. My my family was asking me this thing, and I was like, I, I should know this. Does golf continue after the FedEx championship? It does, yes. So how many more tournaments will there be? before? Because I know like, there is a hiatus kind of like in November, December. Yeah, so that, that's, you're, that's exactly right. The hiatus is going to be, I believe, around Thanksgiving, December 1st timeframe. And it's going to be, Spencer, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it's a it's a good month. And then they, they start up in Hawaii basically right after New Year's. Yeah, I mean, that's correct. And, and as far as this goes, we'll have the Tour Championship. I believe there's a week off. Uh, you're going to have the next season start the week after that. The Ryder Cup is, I believe, the week after that. And then it's just going to be tournaments from there until about November. And then, yeah, you're going to have that month hiatus until you get to January. So there's not a very long break to it. You kind of have a week here and there and it, the season just never stops. Well, at least uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's not the end of the road for us, but it will be for the FedEx cup, right? And that's what a lot of the players are playing for. There's a lot of money on the line this week. I think this does mean a lot to the players to kind of finish highly here. So uh, let's get right into it. Let's start breaking it down. Like I said before, it's only a 30 man field. So this is like very different from a DFS purpose than we're used to because Ownership is going to look way different because there has to be because there's not that many other guys to choose from. Um, so, you know, how we pick players, at least for me, is going to look a lot different. And I'll get into that to break it down. But let's always see what are you doing or what are you looking at this week uh, to, to make your picks for the tournament? Well, I'll tell you, I, I hate, you know, we talk about podcast to podcast and show to show, live stream to live stream, how we want to talk about ownership, but we don't want to talk about it too much. But here you kind of have to talk about it. It's 30 people. Okay. So what I'm looking for, and and I'm excited to hear kind of what Spencer's looking for from just a strokes gained standpoint and and different metrics. I'll tell you just from that standpoint, I think it's kind of all important, uh, you know, in, in my model. I've got a probably an emphasis on approach, but I think putting and around the green and three putt avoidance are are things I'm looking forward to along with, of course, uh, off the tee. I think the long irons are definitely in play here more than, than most courses. Um, And and I'd like guys, I mean, again, captain obvious here, but I would like guys that hit the fairway here. Uh, So, you know, looking at fairways gained or good drives, things or driving accuracy, things of that nature, I I think is pretty important. But again, I always defer to Spencer when it comes to that. But I'll tell you the big thing I'm looking for outside of all the metrics is ownership. And so Stephen is going to publish his article at windailysports.com like he always does uh, Wednesday early evening. And it's going to give us a really good indication of who we should probably avoid. This is a tournament where if there's a mega chalk guy, I just don't want to be a part of it because I trust the variance in golf. and, And I'm just not going to... I can't in good conscience in a 30 man field, take a Daniel Berger at like 34%. I just can't do it. If you want to do it. And if you want to lock him in for your cash lineups and maybe you want to throw him in a couple of GPPs, that's fine. I think he's an okay play. I do think he's a little overrated, but that's just my opinion. But you know, whether it's Daniel Berger or Roy McElroy or Dustin Johnson or Tony Finau or John Rahm, who look to be some of the guys that are sort of like super high from an ownership standpoint, at least for now, uh, I might just have to avoid all those guys or at least avoid all of them except for one. Maybe I think John Rahm's going to win the tournament and maybe I just have to hang my hat on that and avoid the rest of the quote chalk. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. For me, um, you know, ownership is going to be huge, especially if you're playing big GPPs. It's almost ownership is going to be the main priority because there's going to be so many duplicates. There has to be. There's only 30 golfers. So mm-hmm. you have to get different if you're going to go GPPs. I am overweighting, I think, this week for me, uh, driving accuracy. I do put a lot more importance on finding fairways this week. So that's the one strokes game metrics that I'm kind of really heightening up and trying to find some guys that are really you know accurate off the tee and can get there. Uh, but other than that, I'm really just looking at ownership and where we can find value and, and be different. But as we know, Spencer does the job of better than anyone I've ever seen of breaking down a tournament in terms of course comparison, the holes, c- composition, and how he's breaking down strokes gain and kind of what he's going to do to find his value for a tournament. So without further ado, Spencer, break it down for us. What are you looking at this week? I appreciate that intro. And, you know, I think Eastlake isn't the birdie fest type track that we've been getting a lot of recently. The winning score has hovered between 11 to 15 under. And there's a lot of challenges that are going to make golfers earn their payday. Uh, You know, we've talked about it on this show. uh, Just with Donald Ross designs in general, we're going to get another Ross design here. Ross loves undulating greens. I I think you're definitely going to get some of that. Uh, Shaved runoffs will enhance the need for around the green play. And you need to miss to the correct quadrant on your irons to avoid three putting. There are 74 bunkers and six water hazards. The par fours feature a good mix of being long and short. And the fact we have 12 of them should make it a category that we weigh. Uh, With that being said, I think par five birdie or better is more important important than most will suggest. Rory gained 53% of his winning score total there in 2019. And DJ added to that belief by maintaining his lead with 55% of his weekly scoring output coming on the par fives. Uh, so before I get into the stats I use, I did measure starting score and average score at Eastlake into my model for 30% and a weighted current form for 20%. The other 50% is my statistical model that goes into it. So I started statistically with a remeasured category that looked at accuracy and strokes gain off the tee. That's 65% accuracy and 35% off the tee. The rough can be extremely penal here. So players that can find the short grass should have an advantage. Uh, top 10 of that model was Connors, Answer, Sungjae, Morikawa, Hovland, Rom, Sergio, Scheffler, Horschel, and Berger. That's for 15% overall. I have 17.5% on GIR percentage plus strokes gain approach over the last 24 rounds. The breakdown there was 60% GIR and 40% approach. There was a lot of overlapping for me there in players. Uh, nine of the top 10 were the same in that, ironically enough. Horschel was the lone exception that I had. I went heavy on some of the strokes gain totals, uh, being 20% strokes gain total on Ross Designs and 50, 15% on strokes gain total on Bermuda. Uh, Rory, Justin Thomas, Rom, Sungjae, Scheffler, DJ, DeChambeau, Morikawa, Xander, Sergio, English, Kepka, Spieth, Berger, Cantley, Neiman were the top 20 in both. So there was a, uh, a handful of guys that overlapped there. Like we only have 30 players in the field, but. I am trying to find guys that are going to like this sort of a design, this sort of a setup. Uh, 12.5% on par 5 birdie or better. As I mentioned previously, scoring on these will go a long way. Par 4 average plus bogey avoidance for 10%. That's 60% bogey avoidance and 40% par 4. I realize that's a lot towards the bogey avoidance, but I had a hard time finding par 4 to be overly important, even though we have 12 of them. I think avoiding disaster is the more prudent play that I'm trying to find. And I finished it with 10% on three putt around the green and sand save being pretty flat between the three. It was just another way for me to find value with it. But I guess the one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, because the one thing that wasn't mentioned is, you know, the starting scores are going to matter and it does come into play on drafting. So I think that's another way that we need to be looking. And I'm not saying every single person that is starting at even par shouldn't be played. And every person that's starting at 10 under should be played because a lot of those numbers are being baked into the fact already. But I think you need to be cognizant of where everybody's starting, kind of have a plan on what to do with it. And that's one of the things I've noticed is like everybody in the industry, and this might be more of a betting answer than everything, anything else with this. Uh, everybody wants to know how far can you be to act back to actually win this tournament. And I do have some numbers if you guys want to hear these for a second, because I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. So Uh, I have 45 tournaments in my database. So this is essentially from last year up until this year. Four of those have seen someone come from six or more shots back after round one. So a little under 9%. I'll discuss those players in a second. But that should mean theoretically everyone still has a chance since we aren't even starting at that stage yet. But here's the problem with it. 
Eastlake isn't a great course to make up ground. There have been 764s and 665s in the last two years, and only once did that equate to being three shots better than the second place player for the day. Most of the time, five, six, seven, or eight players were, were within one or two of that uh, total that somebody posted. So the four players that have done it are Dustin Johnson at the 2020 Travelers. He was nine back. Rom at last year's BMW and Rory at this year's Wells Fargo were eight back. And JT made up six shots at the players. That's essentially the elite of the elite. But even Rom and DJ have question marks on there because Dustin won at 19 under and shot an impossible 61 for Eastlake standards on Saturday. And Rom's victory came at four under where only five players were under par. I think the Rory and Thomas wins more mimic what we're going to get this week. I, I think you're going to need the perfect collapse from a guy like Cantley if you really want to be like two under to get into the equation. I think if you can shoot a 64, 65 on day one, you at least put yourself in, in the ballpark. I, I kind of think that the evens, uh, the one unders are kind of dead in the water to start with on this. You know, maybe the two unders like Rory and Xander and those guys come more into play if, if Cantley shoots an even par and those guys shoot a 65. Uh, but to me, more of that, like four under five under and up range is more realistically of who has a chance in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, Joel, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I still think, I suppose there's an out shot, outside shot that the guys at minus two, like your Xanders and Roy's could have a chance if Cantlay, Finau and Bryson kind of like collectively collapse over a few rounds, which by the way, I don't think is impossible. I don't yeah, either. I mean, yeah, it's it's a really good point though, because again, we're, we'd like to have the guy and, and, you know, Spencer, can I ask you this? So what I did when I was constructing um, DraftKings lineups was I, I picked a lot of guys I liked, whether it was course history, strokes gain metrics, guys that I thought could climb the leaderboard, but weren't necessarily guys that could actually win it. And then I went ahead and I just, picked off in, in a couple of lineups. I just picked off John Rom because I do think he's going to win it. So, I mean, from a DraftKings standpoint, I feel like that I, that's the only strategy I can really come up with because obviously I can't grab a bunch of guys at the top that, that are at minus seven and minus eight and, you know, minus 10. So to me, it's about like having guys that can enjoy I'd, I'd like your feedback here too. It's about guys who can climb the leaderboard to some degree for whatever reason you decide they can climb the leaderboard uh, maybe some guys that are also a little contrarian, so that you know it's an extra layer there. But then also grabbing the guy that you actually think is going to win, and that's sort of your DraftKings lineup, at least in GPPs. Do, do you guys agree with that sort of uh, workup, or is there a different way you're approaching it? So I think that's interesting. For me, you know, my thought process started as I'm totally fine, not totally fading, but not going too heavy at the top because that's where the obvious ownership is going to be, right? You guys start with the lead. I'm going to go there. But let's keep this in mind. Just because you start 10 under doesn't mean you get those 10 birdies. And you need to score in DraftKings and you get points for birdies. So it helps. Like, obviously, you're going to need the winner because of the of the, the points for winning the tournament. That's obvious. You got to get the winner. Other than that, a guy who climbs the leaderboard is way more valuable for DraftKings than a guy who started at the top because he's not getting those extra birdie points that he started with. So for that reason, you know, I'll fade the ownership and try and get guys that climb. But like you said, see, you also have to have the winner with it because they're going to get those 30 points and um, that's going to make a difference. So you got to get the winner. And then from there, take the guys you think will climb. Get the guys who are going to jump because those extra birdies are how we're going to score on DraftKings and it'll probably come with lower ownership. So that's how I'm going to be looking at it from a GPP perspective. Keep this in mind. You know, I think we said already, there's going to be duplicate entries. There's only 30 players. It's hard to avoid, especially in the biggest field. So if you're not looking to be really different and trying to find some of these low owner guys, you're going to share a prize and you're not going to be too happy with it. So uh, just how you want to play, if you want to just do single entries, I think that that would make a lot of sense this week, uh, but definitely a lot different. I definitely wouldn't approach this week like you would any other. Yeah. All... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. And I think what both of you guys are saying, I think that's optimal game theory this week with the strategy for it. Cause the other part of it is too, like, let's just look at Patrick Cantley and I don't want to throw him under the bus because they kind of all have this problem with it, but you get a price tag of $13,400 with him. He's the top guy on the board. That's building in already. And as you said, Joel, like he didn't make 10 birdies to get to there. You don't get the points for that. So if on day one, he goes out and he goes three over par, or let's just say he really blows up and he's like five, six over par. 
you've all of a sudden built in or taken all that built in total that's being put into that number and you're dead in the water with it, at least for the start until he makes it back up. So I think the optimal way to play it is kind of try to figure out who you think can win the tournament. And then I am just picking apart the bottom of that range, trying to find guys that I think can make a run. Those are going to be your birdie makers that actually give you a chance to win the tournament. And if you can find enough of those guys that make a run for cheap and you get a winner to it, I think at the end of the day, you're going to have lineups that are going to match. I think the one way around that is if you leave a ton of salary on the table, maybe you can differentiate yourself from the pack a little bit more by doing that. But I mean, if you're anywhere near the end starting or the end total for it, I think you're going to have lineups that are just mimicking people across the board. So if you leave like multiple thousands, that's probably like the one way to make sure you're super unique from everybody else. And the last thing I want, I want people to keep in mind as well is with DK scoring, you could also have a guy that maybe just gets a lot of birdies and doesn't score well. Maybe he goes, he blows up one day and he finishes 20th, but he gets a ton of birdies. That's okay. Especially in a 30 person field, that guy could probably be in a winning lineup just because he scored well on DK. So don't think you have to have the top five or six just to win this tournament. Think scoring, right? Think DraftKings, birdie or better. That's how I think we have to attack uh, this tournament. So while we're there, let's do it. Let's start at right at the top of the 11K range. Uh, Spencer, why don't you kick us off? Who do you like in the top range here? Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of am going to go with what Sia just said about John Rom. Like, I, I ran my model my model two ways this week to try to land on a winner. The first was taking starting strokes and adding on a weighted average of production at Eastlake to figure out who was the most likely winner. I'll get to that in a second because it wasn't Rom, surprisingly. But the second was just a recalculated model that looked at starting strokes, uh, production at Eastlake, overall form and statistical fit. And that landed me on John Rom. And I don't think that that's some statement that anybody's a surprise to like i think rom is the perceived favorite even being four shots back uh yes he's going to be the most popular play on it i really don't have a problem with it i think rom's game is just so good right now like it's kind of unfortunate i guess the biggest gripe i have with the system is i hate how they jack up the totals of the fedex cup points you get for those two events leading into this because there's a no world can't lay in fee now should be number one and two on it. Like Rom should be number one heading into this tournament. So that's my biggest gripe I have with the system. And then the other guy I am going to play a little bit of is just fee now at 11,800. He was the second guy that I mentioned that taught my model when using the starting strokes and adding in average production. Um, you know, I must admit my second model didn't really like his chances whatsoever because of his inability to score on par fives. But I do think fee is the dark horse to walk out of this, the winner. So uh, I like Rom. I like Finau. DeChambeau is going to be the wild card here. You don't really know what you're going to get from him. Um, Justin Thomas, I guess, is an interesting one if we're including him also with it. The ownership's high. You really have a baked in number with him, but uh, he was number two in both ways. I ran my model. And then I guess Cantlay's the one, even with the ownership, I'm just the most out on. And that doesn't have anything to do because the one thing I've seen a lot of people say is he's due for regression because of his putting. I'm not a believer of that. Like I'm the person that's trying to find regression in putting and all those things. Everybody in that tournament went crazy. Like Bryson, even with all the putts, he missed gained 10 shots in that tournament. Cantley was a top 10 ball striker. That's not the problem he has. Uh, when we look at what he's done at this exact course, nine over one over and even par in his three attempts, he's only posted four of his 12 rounds in the green when it comes to strokes gain total compared to the field. He's in the bottom tier on Bermuda and has historically been the worst Donald Ross player by my math, which, as I said, is stemming, stemming from the bad form I just mentioned at this venue. But I think a bad result from him on day one just opens this up for everybody else underneath. So um, I think Bryson might be a little bit too volatile for me. I'm probably not going to go down that route. I think Cantlay is the guy I just want no part of. And then I really like Rom. I'll sprinkle in some Finau. I think you could make an argument with Thomas that he might be a better cash game play than anything else, just with what we're getting with his ownership and all that and starting at four under, but uh, Rom is my guy. I like it. I I'm with you. I, I, I certainly agree with your take. It doesn't seem fair that it's so much heavily weighted at the end here where these guys have been playing great all year. And now these guys who just played well at the end, get ahead of them. Um, in my opinion, no, no, not that anyone asked, but I would like to see, is that you get all your FedEx points throughout the year, and then coming into these last three tournaments, it's one score, right? So if you it's it's four rounds, three different rounds, but your score doesn't reset after round two. You got to keep going and actually have three weeks where 
you have to be the best player for all three weeks and really accumulate. That's how I think. And then if you're the best player all year and you get your Rom has the lead going into this, and then he has to actually compete for three weeks. I think that's maybe a four, more fair way that I like to see it done. But see, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's just so fraudulent that Patrick Cantlay and Tony Finau are at the top here. I mean, it's just like bizarro world. And by the way, it's even more fraudulent than you think because Patrick Cantlay should have never won the Memorial. That should have been John Rahm's. I mean, I don't think there's anybody that would actually argue that he was up what six going into the final day. And, you know, obviously got COVID for like, I don't know, like the 19th time. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't like that aspect of it, Spencer. I completely agree with you there. Um, I do like John Rahm to win this tournament. I, I definitely think he's playing better overall than all of these guys at the top. I mean, Patrick Cantlay, Tony Finau, Bryson, you know, right behind him, you've got Cam Smith, Justin Thomas. Justin Thomas is interesting. If if I had any faith in his putter, I would. And by the way, uh, the regression argument with Cantlay, I'm actually glad you brought that up, Spencer, because of course he's going to regress from 15 strokes gained last tournament. But the opposite is true with the ball striking as well. There might be some positive regression that way because he's a great ball striker and he only gained two strokes ball striking. Yes, only he was minus 27. And he only gained two strokes ball striking last tournament. So it's it's one of those things where, yeah, the putter's obviously going to fade a little bit. But, I mean, the ball striking is probably going to improve a little bit, too, other than the fact that he's just pretty much terrible here, like Spencer pointed out. So, yeah, he's an absolute fade for me. Give me John Rahm at the top. If we're talking 11K and above, the only other guy I thought I was interested in was DJ because I thought DJ would be slightly contrarian, even though he's done well here. I just thought at that price people would – pivot down to like your Rory McIlroy's or your, you know, whoever it is, uh, Xander Shoffley's. But it turns out it's looking like DJ's ownership is, is pretty high. So I have no interest there. So just give me John Rahm in this category. Can, can I say one thing really fast to that? Because that's the other interesting thing about Cantlay though last week. When you look at it going into Sunday, and I didn't run the numbers for Sunday, but going into Sunday, Cantlay was eighth in that tournament off the T-plus approach. Every single person that was on the top of that leaderboard gained a million strokes putting. Cantley's ball striking was really good. That wasn't like his ball striking has remained really good for the last couple of weeks with it. So that's kind of where like if you give me a guy where the ball striking has been horrible and he gained all these shots putting, then like maybe then there's a problem. But the ball striking has been really good. It was really good last week. Like by metrics, yes, he only gained two whatever you said he gained on it. But that's pretty much across the board. Like Bryson going into the final day was at like four and a half or five shots off the T plus approach. And he was like by far and away number one with it. So I think that was just one of the weirder tournaments we've ever seen mm -hmm. before. For sure. Hey, Joel, if you don't mind, I, I do want to just acknowledge some of the people that are that are watching. We have Coach who has always been chiming in, giving us information on Twitter. Uh, Coach is, is just one of one of the best guys out there on social media. So we always appreciate him. He is a big Burns guy, apparently. Um, Jesse chiming in, another faithful listener. Um, thank you. Uh, and then David, of course, uh, time to print money. I I'd be remiss if Joel, we, we got to bring up something here. So Spencer's picked the outright winner three weeks in a row. And for the record, I think he's been a regular guest on this show for three weeks as well prior to today. So I don't know if it's, if it's Spencer doing it, or if it's just the wind daily karma, that's really creating these outrights. But nonetheless, speaking of printing money. So not only did Spencer have the outright for the third week in a row. And by the way, it's not like he's giving out like 10 outrights. He usually has like what somewhere between three and five outrights that he picks. I think Spencer, you correct me if I'm wrong, but not only did he pick the third one in a row, but Joel, you and I had the first round leader as well, which we stated on this show. We said Sam Burns was one of our first round leaders and that came true. So I'm not saying we're printing money, but I am saying, especially from a betting perspective, we're really giving you like most of the guys that are that are end up cashing. I know the Better Golf podcast is giving you top 20s, top 40s, head to heads. I know they're doing well there, too. So um, it's it's definitely been a pretty good run, especially from a, a betting standpoint. So I'm happy uh, David uh, chimed in there. And then we have a couple of questions. Let's see. With such a small field, should we avoid the large multi-entry tournaments this week and put the focus on single-entry tournaments? Um, I don't think so. Do you guys have an opinion on that? I think it depends how you play. If you're going to put, like, three entries in a large field, then at that point, my only advice would be be very contrarian, right? Just mm -hmm. find low ownership. Do not play a guy 40% owned. Um, it's just going to be really difficult to compete. Um 
I do think it, it makes sense to play more single entries and things this week because of that. I think you'll eliminate some of the du- because if you play three lineups and two of them are duplicated, you've kind of just you're just a wash at that point. It's really hard to win anything that way. Yeah, and, and for for the record, Spencer, I, I want your answer there too. But I, I think the only reason I was like it doesn't really matter is because I'm thinking if you're doing the big contests you better be embracing the volatility of golf and taking the contrarian players. You have to do that in the big ones. In the single entries, you still have to do it a little bit because there's only 30 people. But I think you can play the big tournaments. You just have to be willing to play like Stuart Sink. And Kevin, you know, Kevin Na looks to be more popular than I thought, but got like guys like Billy Horschel or uh, Joaquin Neiman, Patrick Reed, who might end up climbing. I'm not sure because he was a late entry. Harris English. Those are all guys that are relatively contrarian. So if you're going to play the bigger ones, you, you better play some of those guys. Sorry, Spencer, I, I cut you off. No, you're fine. And I, and I think you're right with that. And it's funny, Nick and I, even though we do a betting show, uh, we talked about this exact thing. Uh, you know, I kind of agree with him. I don't think this is a great week for MMEs. I, I think I'd rather play single entries with it. Uh, if But as Joel said, if you're going to play them, or as both of you guys said, you need to be super contrarian. Like you're going to have to find routes that nobody else is taking on it. So you're going to have to stomach some of what that's going to end up entailing with it. So uh, I kind of like single entries more. I, I I kind of prefer tournaments where we have 156 players. We can make concrete decisions compared to the field. We're not going to have so many overlapping moves that are going to happen with it. But uh, yeah, for me, single en- entry three max, maybe cash games, you know, are a good week for them. But uh, I'm not a huge fan of MMEs. And if you're going to do it, I think you're going to have to be very contrarian. And one last thing, Joel, real real quick. I'm sorry if you had something to add, but I, I wanted to make sure Scott gets in here because he's another loyal listener, uh, loyal on social media as well. Uh, and, you know, this is such an interesting question because he asks, for those of you listening on the podcast, how about, by the way, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, check us out, give us a review. How about Showdown, showdown Contests? Is there any advantage in playing those? Joel, obviously, I want your answer there. It's funny, though, because I feel like, this is kind of showdown, like even going into it because you already have sort of the placement points that are in there. But Joel, uh, go, go ahead on that one. My biggest thing for, for a tournament like this for a showdown is I find, and you'll see like on Sundays, I find I don't like to often go to the leaders because they're usually playing conservative, trying to hold on to their lead, not mm-hmm. attacking birdies. And uh, we want guys who can score well, right? And that's how we're going to win money. So the same concept applies here, except for we already know there's guys in the lead starting the tournament because they get those points. So, you know, I don't know how conservative can you play? You're going to try and win. But like, if you're coming at this with a lead, you might, you know, try and not make mistakes opposed to really attacking holes and trying to score. So that's my thought process is, you know, Patrick Canley would in no world be the most expensive golfer if he didn't have potential bleed. To me, that's not necessarily a DraftKings advantage. So I'm with the guys in that I'm probably not going to be playing too much. Can't lay. like there's guys down in the 8K range that in a normal week, are in the top range or the one of the more expensive guys, but because of this weird field, they're getting adjusted. And those are the guys I want to go after guys that I know can accumulate a ton of birdies in scoring. I might even do like what Spencer said. I probably won't even spend all my money. That's how I'll get different. I might just do a balanced lineup of, of lower salary guys um, who I know can score really well and, and see where that takes me. So that's kind of my thought process around it, but you guys have any different thoughts on, on the showdown aspect? You, you can go see ya. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't really, I'm not really interested in playing showdown, at least not on the front end. Um, I do think this has showdown, this whole tournament has showdown aspects to it, obviously, because of the starting strokes. So I think that's something to keep in mind. There's going to be a lot of people leaning towards the top, like we talked about at the front end of the show. So you can kind of use, you know, game theory on, you know, th- those guys dropping and some of the guys at the bottom rising. And, and if you can pick the right guys that are somewhat contrarian as well, especially in the bigger tournaments, and you can pick the winner. I think you're in pretty good shape. So, I mean, I think showdown is is interesting, but I'm not really interested in it for the first couple of rounds, at least. Yeah, like we see it every single week with these guys that they don't seem to keep their foot to the pedal once they get a lead. And it, it's a unique spot that these guys have not earned it. I know we've stressed that point a lot of times on this show, but they haven't earned where they're at with it. So uh, we saw it with Justin Thomas a couple years ago where he had the lead. Um, he didn't hold it very well. And, and, Dustin did a better job of it last year of being able to maintain it a little bit better. And that's why he was so hard to catch. But I always think showdowns interesting. I think a tournament like this, you know, makes it less so just because you only have 30 players to pick from, from it. So it's like, how unique can you really get with it? But 
I, you know, I, I have my model that I do over at Roto Baller where I'm trying to find showdown plays and I'm trying to find positive and negative regression for certain stats. And I'm trying to find guys that can have an advantage. And I do think it makes sense. These guys that have nothing to lose down beneath uh, on this leaderboard may be able to take a little bit of a shot with it, but in the same breath, this isn't a course where guys are going to shoot 62s and 63s. I mean, if you can make, if you can birdie all the par fives on the day and maybe pick one or two up somewhere else in your five or six under, like that's as good as it's going to get. So I think you need birdies. I think that's the most important thing. And and I think you can kind of get unique with it, but how much so can you do with 30 people? Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I'll probably look at showdown nine until the weekend. Um, at that point, that's typically when I pick it up. And that's also when they have more, for me, uh, better tournaments on DraftKings that are, are more intriguing. So in this top range for me, obviously, Rom's someone I'm going to be looking at just because of how well he's playing. It's hard to fan him at 40%. I will not be overweight on him. Uh, I'll probably be more underweight than I've been more recently just because in a 30-person field, 40% is hard to stomach. But it's hard to fade someone playing as well as he's playing. Um, I like Tony Fino, especially if he's going to remain under 20% in this field. Under 20% is is a good thing. It's huge. So I think Fino can compete this week. I think Fino's going to corner. And how ironic would it be if Tony Fino, who hasn't won anything in five years, all of a sudden turned around and won the whole FedEx Cup championship? So uh, I'm rooting for Tony. I, I like Tony. I'm a fan of him. So for that reason, I like Tony this week. And then lastly, I think uh, – Jordan Spieth, I mean, he's looking like really low-owned. Obviously, the issue with Jordan is hitting, you know, his off the teocracy is not as strong, too, which is something we're waiting here. But as good as he is to get that low of ownership, if he gets hot with his putter this week, anything can happen, right? If he starts burying putts from all over the course, um, you know, he, he certainly can get himself in contention. So I think from a GPP perspective, I think Spieth perspective, Spieth is interesting because of how good he is and, and the ownership seems to be favorable for this tournament. Dropping down to the to the nine k section, uh, and I kind of I guess to, to wrap up the ten k, I will play some Cameron Smith as well. I think for the same reason, I don't think his ownership is going to be too crazy, and he's another one guy that you know we know can get really hot with the putter, and his ball striking has been good. Like he's one of those guys that we typically are like, you just got to stomach the fact that he's not a great ball striker, but recently he has been striking well. So if we're going to get a Cam Smith who's striking the ball well and making putts, that's going to be a dangerous man. Can I say one thing to that? Because I skipped that section altogether. I figured we were going $11,000 and up. And I agree with you on Cameron Smith. I think that's the other guy that I do want to put into lineups just because number one in my model in par five scoring, number one in my model in three putt avoidance. I think that if he can get hot, he can make a run. I think the speed one is interesting. My model didn't necessarily love him. I think if you are playing MMEs, that's where he makes sense. I think that's where you can get a little bit contrarian with it. And then I'm probably out on Dustin. Um, Dustin just seems like a little bit too much of a dart throw. Now he may be fine, but I feel like there's guys for $3,000 less that we'll get into shortly that are just as good of plays when we look at the floor and the ceiling that they provide. So I think that Dustin price tag at 10,700 starting at three under par is just a little bit more than I would feel okay paying. I'm with you. I, I think, uh, I think it's time that DraftKings adjust Dustin's price. I think he should probably be about, $1,000 less is a little bit more. And then I'd, I'd be like, oh, that's a tough one. Now I want to consider him. But at this price, he's just not playing in that elite range. So uh, I'm not there on him. I So one of, my, one of my favorite plays this week, though, I will say, I'm going to start us off in the in the next tier, is Abraham Answer. I love Abraham Answer this week. I think in terms of driving accuracy, he's one, if the leader, if not one of the leaders on tour, He's been striking the ball really well. He's been playing great. He's thinking, but he doesn't really have much of a weakness here. So, I mean, the only weakness maybe is that he's not the longest. But I think he can get there on these holes. Um, again, not the best history here. I mean, he he does have a – is uh, tied for 18 and tied for 21. Keep in mind, that's not good because only 30 guys play here, right? So, if you're on the second half, right? normally if you get two top 20s, you're kind of like, oh, that's pretty good. But here – not really, because there's only 30 guys. You're in the second half of the of the field. But uh, I just think Anthony's in good form. He's coming in where he's been playing really well. I think this is a spot where, you know, maybe the price is a little high, which would keep the ownership good. I definitely want to go there. Rory, I think people are still hanging on to the old Rory. Now, listen, he is playing well. His ball striking's there. But Rory is similar to Justin Thomas. He can't make a putt. He, he's a, he, you know... He's a disaster. Like he'll, he'll hit a great approach shot and have that eagle look, 
miss that, miss the, miss the birdie putt and par it. And that keeps happening. So while the approach numbers and everything look great, he's just not doing it, right? He's boging. He's not getting there. And so Rory's, I mean, Rory's going to have to show me something before I go back. And at 35%, I can happily fade him there. Um, kind of just dipping down a little bit into, I'll go up down to the AK range for, for this tier. I like Harris English a lot. Again, I'm looking for the, the combination of two things, ownership and then value. Harris English is a guy we've seen play really well this year. The ownership is is definitely in control for a guy who can definitely find fairways, doesn't have too many weaknesses at under 20%. I'll definitely be going back to that well. And lastly, and one of my favorite plays, it's a risky one, but I did it last week on Sunday Showdown, which was kind of like if Colin Morikawa is going to get disrespected to the 8K range and 8K flat, it's like, I know he wasn't playing well. He has an injury. There's some risk there. He's Colin Morikawa. He's playing in the event. He's way too good to be that much of a value. You have to play him. So this week for me at this price, I know there's risk. This is the type of risk you got to take, especially in a 30-person field at a low ownership. I will be hammering Colin Morikawa knowing his upside is the type of upside that, that can win win a tournament like this. So that's how I'm looking at it. Uh, Sia, what are you looking at here in this range? So first of all, I agree on Cam Smith. So let me back up there because I, first of all, he's going to be pretty contrarian again, relative to the guys around him. So that's something to keep in mind there. I, I think he's he's kind of always a smart play. He always figures it out, even if the metrics don't really match up. Uh, I like answer. I like the answer play. I liked Rory, especially because of his history here. But you know, he's probably going to be between like 27 and 30% owned, if not higher. So it's kind of one of those things. Again, if you're operating on game theory and being contrarian, it, you know, maybe in cash, but it's just not something I'm interested in. Uh, Xander, I am interested in. He's a little chalky, but not nearly. Again, we'll have to wait till Steven's article comes out, but he's more like in the 20% range as opposed to the 30% range. So if I'm in this sort of eight to nine K range, Xander's probably my favorite guy. I do like answer. I like the value of English, but I don't really like English's ability to close in this field necessarily. Uh, Morikawa is interesting, but I think I'm going to go back to Hovland. Um, Hovland and Cantley, I was kind of big on in last week's show. Unfortunately, I played more Hovland than I did Cantley, uh, to my detriment. But I think I'll go back to Hovland. Uh, his he, he, his ball striking last week was really good. His short game was wasn't so great. I know short game is going to be somewhat important here, but I like Hovland's upside. So the two guys in this sort of let's see eight to eight and nine K range that I like the most are probably Xander and Hovland. And keep in mind, I am keeping in mind ownership when I talk about this as well. Totally. Spencer, go ahead. What are are you looking at in this range? You know, I guess the one problem I have with answer, not that I have a problem with answer is I always question what his win equity actually is in these tournaments. Now I think he's going to be very safe. And I don't think he's going to burn lineups. And I think you're going, going to be more or less okay with the performance he gives. But he is one of the more expensive guys. I think the number is a little bit high. I'm curious to see where the ownership ends up going on him. I kind of just prefer him as a cash play over anything else if I'm looking at that. Maybe single entries if you want to fit him in there. But you know, Rory, I've gone back and forth on so many times. The good is that models are going to love him. He's dominated Eastlake in his career. The bad that it's still the same volatility that we've seen from him in the past. Like... He's good one day. He's bad the next day. He's missing putts. He's not doing exactly what you want from him. Uh, ownership doesn't matter for cash games. So I think you can pencil him in there. Uh, Justin Thomas kind of falls in under that same thing of two guys that just can't seem to make putts. But I think for for what we're looking at here, it's fine. We're trying to find guys that can get hot. For a, for a cash game, it makes a little bit more sense than for paying 30-something percent for them. Uh, I think single entry, you can maybe make an argument. I, I kind of just have more of the problem in MMEs than anything else. Just 30 something percent's a lot for him. Uh, I agree. I would rather pivot onto Xander if I'm going to play one of the two. I think of all the guys priced above their starting total, Xander's the one that makes the most sense as to why. He's the cheapest. He's the lowest owned of that like Thomas Rory group that we're talking about, Dustin being included into that. I really like Harris English this week also. Uh, I think he turns into an intriguing pivot spot because of what's going on around him. You have Rory Xander burns underneath him. All these players are going to be hovering around 30%. I think it opens up a really good window of opportunity for English. My model has him as a positive value across the board. He's gained in his last nine starts around the green in six of his past seven with his irons. And he's fifth in this field in par five birdie or better. Uh, I am okay with the mentality of Morikawa just because of what he presents you if it hits. I think he's GPP only. I think he's a better play for MME contests than probably anything else. 
And then I really like Hovland also. I keep going down this Hovland boat. Uh, I know C and I every single week seem to be doing it on this show, but short game continues to spiral, but he's gained 5.08 shots off the T plus approach over his last four starts on average. I think this is a really good buy low spot for him. And if the around the green stuff and the putter cleans itself up, I do think he can make birdies and bunches and make a run here. And I mean, that's probably to me, like I will have a bunch of Hovland. I like English a lot. And Xander's more of the one that I'm sprinkling into lineups and going to be probably around what public consensus is. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Um, there's a few questions in the chat that I'll, I'll, we can, we can touch on quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like for, for some of the, well, I guess we'll start with for projected ownership on Marikawa. Yeah, it, it looks like it's around 20%. And just to give you an idea, that's about, at least for right now, what Xander's ownership is. Keep in mind, this really can change. So you guys really have to dial into Steven's article tomorrow. It's usually around five o'clock, six o'clock at the latest that it's out. Yeah, ahead, it's Joel. hard for us to give any final answers until we get that. That is the most accurate ownership projections I've seen. So once you get that, that's when you want to make some final decisions. We'll get some rough estimates right now, but those, especially in the 30-man field, can drastically change. So you don't want to get too committed to anything until you see the final ownership numbers uh, tomorrow. In terms of thought process, you just don't want to have six guys you know, that are 30% in that range and over it. That's a recipe for getting duplicates. If you really love Rom and he's going to be 40%, that's fine. But just couple him with guys that are closer to 15 or below so that you're not just going to have this full lineup of high ownership. Um, if you avoid Rom, then you can go more, you know, 20, 25% of all around because you don't have that high 40% guy. So that's how I look at it. There's not an exact science to it. Just don't play all the high owned guys. If you're going to play one of the higher owned ones, just sprinkle it in, mix in some of the lower owned guys to average it out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, that's one of the things I said on the Be The Number pod too. It's like, you don't want to start with like, Rom, Rory, Xander, Sungjae, Scheffler, and have all these guys, like, because you're just going to get duplicated left and right with it. Like, you can play them, and that's fine, but you're just going to have to mix and match to where it makes some sort of sense. Totally. And the, the, the issue is, if you haven't had this happen to you before, it's happened to me, and it stinks. If you do get the duplicated lineup, you can't really make any – I mean, maybe if it's one duplicate, it's no problem, but I've had a time where I, I nailed it. I hit the lineup, the perfect lineup. I'm going to win all this money. And I split the winnings with 200 people. And it's like, you don't win much. And you're like, what, what is the point of even entering that lineup? You can't win anything. Mm-hmm. So it's not worth kind of going going down that line. Um, all right, let's go down to the seven range. It's interesting. It's, it's weird seeing Brooks Kepka's name with a 7,000 in front of it. So, um, you know, for that reason, right, these are the types of guys where you can get a Brooks Kepka and this below 8K, I mean, you can get really different. And, like, this is the type of thing where, like, for a GPP, there's something I'm going to be doing this week is I'm going to have some lineups that are, like, the highest salaried guy is Morikawa. And it goes Morikawa, you know, Kepka, and all these guys. And I'm not going to spend all my salary. It should. Who knows? It should ensure that I don't get duplicates because it's different. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a GPP strategy for me to help me kind of be different and maybe hopefully get uh, into some of these bigger fields. So – um, is one of those guys I'll, I'll look at for that. Uh, I have no problem for those of you that want to play Louis, especially at this pretty low ownership. I do want to see what the final ownership numbers come on Louis before I make that final decision. I'm not, I, I love the way Sung Jay is playing, but at the over 30% ownership, I'll pass. I don't, I don't think he's that good of a golfer where I want to, you know, play a chalky Sung Jay. And I'm looking the same thing for Scheffler. I just think Scheffler was on a heater. And Sheffield's one of those guys where, like, when he's 7K in these big fields, he just makes a lot of sense. But here at the, at the high ownership and in the fields where he's not that much cheaper than Brooks Kepka, I just don't feel the need to go there at this ownership. So I'll probably be fading him as well. Um, for the most part, kind of scrolling down, I'm going to go down to the – we'll put the, the limit here at the 6K range. For the most part, the only other guy down here that I'm really intrigued by is Kevin Na, just because of the really low ownership, right? This is a guy who – has gotten hot recently. He's elite around the green. Um, you know, he sinks a few putts this week at this really, really low ownership. I think that's a good way for these big fields to get different. So other than that, uh, those are the guys that I'm really targeting in this range. Spencer, who are you looking at here? Yeah, I think the Kepka one's an interesting one. And as I was talking about Dustin Johnson being, you know, $3,000 more than players with similar floors and ceilings, Kepka's the name that I was really mentioning as I was doing that. So He's gained off the tee in his last 15 starts. I, 
think he's a really good dart throw for GPP contests. I think, you know, he comes in one shot behind Dustin, $3,000 less. I actually think the form's a little bit better than Dustin's also. And it's kind of to your point of it, like Dustin should be much cheaper than he is. Like I get he has a shot on Kepka, but it's not worth $3,000 on it. So I really like Kepka. Um, Louis at 7,600. I think of all the quote unquote injured golfers, Louis probably my favorite if the ownership does stay low. And I'm not really a guy who plays a ton of Louis. And maybe it's because I talk to Nick every single week. And now he has me on this like Louis and Tommy Fleetwood train where I seem to want to target those two guys every week. But I think part of the thing that I like about it is there's like all the intrigue that was around him has dampened because of his bad back. So if we're looking at a guy that's not going to be over 20% owned, I mean, my numbers have him closer to 16% right now, which is a lot lower than most of the guys in this range. He gained 2.3 shots with his irons at the BMW while losing 2.6 with his putter. That's about as much of an outlier performance as you can get from him. He's the number one putter in my model. He's the number one putter in the world. I think that that's a spot where positive regression is going to come back for him. So I really like Louie down in this range. And then unfortunately, like I'm not one that typically bites on this super chalk. I really like Sungjae and I really like Scheffler and I'm trying to find any reason not to pick those two guys. But like for Sungjae, it's similar to Cantley last week. I think he's trending in the direction of a win. It may not come here because he's too far back. Now, I will say if you're making a bet without starting strokes uh, being included, 35 to one on Sungjae there, I think might have some intrigue. I think he can make a run there. He's gained 2.5 strokes off the tee in his last four on average, 2.8 with his irons over his previous eight. Yes, the ownership has him inside the top five, but that's really the only reason why I would want to fade him. I think I can get contrarian enough around him and leave enough money on the table where I can make that work. And the same thing with Scotty Scheffler. He was second here last year. If we remove the starting strokes, he's averaged 4.1 shots T to green over his last 11 trackable events. Uh, just across the board, those are two guys that are popping out for me. I kind of like Hideki Matsuyama at 6,400. I think anytime Hideki isn't on a birdie fest, type track. His upside increases because he doesn't need to make as many putts. He's recorded 16 straight rounds of being par or better. He's shown flashes at East Lake in the past. I'm kind of just willing to bet on his ball striking. He's one of my preferred targets. I think Connors is fine at 6,200. I prefer Hideki if I'm making the choice, like the ownership's going to be close. I think Hideki's the better play of doing it. And then really, I mean, if you're, if we're just talking about the last two guys being Kevin Na and Jason Kokrak, I think you can get contrarian with either one of those two. Um, I don't know if those are the two that I would pick, though. I I have a guy really low down beneath that I'd rather play uh, than these two. I think my problem with Nas, is he's just been so awful here in the past. Yes, the form is turning around, but plus three, plus two, plus 13 in his three starts here. Kokrak, the positives are the irons finally turned around at the BMW, gaining 3.4 shots over the four days. Yes, he's been good at Eastlake in the past, but... I don't know. There's just something about Kokrak that doesn't seem right to me. I know the ownership is low enough to maybe take a shot, but I would just rather do it with like Hideki at like 7% more. And then if I really want to get crazy with it, just go to somebody down underneath and uh, kind of be contrarian in that route. Yeah, I think that that totally makes sense. Um, so yeah, talk to me. Who are you looking here in this range? So let's start with Brooks Kepka. I mean, that, that certainly makes sense. And honestly, his ownership doesn't appear to be really that high. So obviously, you're getting tremendous upside with Brooks Kepka, who's at minus two and in theory could close the gap again if we have the, the, the three or four at the top uh, collapse. So I, I like him. I like Scotty Scheffler a lot. I like Jason Kokrak for two reasons. One is because he's contrarian. He's going to be one of the lower owned guys. And two, because he did rebound a little bit last week with the ball striking. The, the, turn, the three tournaments prior to last week, uh, were not good, like laughably bad for Jason Kokrak. And so now it looks like he's rebounded. He's contrarian. So I think he's a guy, especially in your non-single entry lineups, to like your MMEs, for example, um, to have a few shares of. Uh, I like Hideki. I'm worried about what his ownership is going to be like. But Spencer, I, I love your point on on the harder tracks and and Hideki. So I like that. And in the six, yeah, I agree on that. Like he is a contrarian play, or at least you would think so. But he is like, he is higher. The ownership looks to be higher than like Jason Kokrak, Patrick Reed, Neiman, St. Horschel. If he was super, super contrarian, I'd be willing to overlook his troubles at Eastlake, but I don't think I'm going to be on him, but I, I totally get the play. It is slightly contrarian either way. I think Corey Connors is interesting from a ball striking standpoint. I know I've kind of said this whole range. So let me give you my top three. 
Um, Louis, I, I may have to avoid and same with Sungjae because of the ownership thing. If I had to take one, I guess I would probably take Louis and then take Spencer's advice on the outright without strokes at 35 to one. I actually absolutely love that number. So give me Brooks, give me Louis, and then give me Kokrak if it's a bigger tournament and give me Scheffler if it's a smaller one. I'll probably avoid Hideki because I'm a little bit worried about where the ownership is going to trend, but I don't mind him at all. All right, I like it. And then, see, why don't you start us off in this bottom range? Who are you uh, looking at down here? So I'll tell you what. Let's have Spencer start it off. And it's because everybody should know my fantasy football draft just started and I'm literally on the clock right now. So <laughs> Spencer, kick us off and we'll go to this bottom range and I'll give you my guys too. Yeah, perfect. So we have Daniel Berg at 5,800 here. I, I don't think there's an argument to be made. He's going to be, if not the most popular guy under 7,000, at least second or third. Like he's going to be super chalk. I, I think he does have playability for cash games uh, but the one I really like is I'd rather pivot to Joaquin Neiman at 5,600. Neiman just needs his short game to turn around. He's gained off the tee in 17 of 20 with his irons. Or I'm sorry, 17 of 20 off the tee, 31 of 34 with his irons. I like his explosiveness this far down the board. I think he's a guy who can get hot, make birdies in bunches. Uh, Sergio at 5,400. He's third on Donald Ross Designs, 13th on Bermuda, fourth in GIR percentage. Uh, he's actually the biggest differential in my model when I'm looking for upside. The ownership seems to be kind of going that direction right now. That's the one concern I have with him. But if I'm going to get contrarian and, and I see him under 10% right now, I kind of like Billy Horschel at 5,100. I know a lot of people are going to go to Eric Van Royen. That's way too much popularity. This is a completely different track for him. He's been doing these at Birdie Fest in his top 10 results. This isn't going to quite be that. I think Horschel's a guy that's just, he ranks fourth at Ross Designs. He's sixth in accuracy in my model. He's competed at big events before, winning the FedEx Cup 2014. He won the WGC match play this year. He came in second in another WGC tournament. If he's sub 10%, $5,100, I think that's a way that you can really start differentiating yourself from the pack if nobody wants to play him. Like, I kind of view him in that range of like him and Co-Cracker. Like, if you're going to take a shot, maybe Kevin Na. But to me, Horschel is the guy I prefer doing it with. So that's the guy I'm going to uh, try to create leverage with. I think that's interesting. Yeah, he definitely is going to be low-owned. Uh, and he does have a, a good track record here. So that, that's the that's an interesting way definitely to be different this week. Uh, before we move on, see who'd you go with? Who'd you take? So, oh, uh, so it's a, it's, it's a weird – it's a two-quarterback league. So you have to spring on quarterbacks really early. So um, – I actually went quarterback in two of my first three picks. So seventh pick overall in a 10-team, two QB league, started with Mahomes. Um, I would have preferred getting like a running quarterback or more of a running quarterback like Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray. But the way it went, Mahomes seemed like the better value. Uh, Jonathan Taylor at running back for my second pick. And then with my third pick, the, the run on quarterbacks had certainly begun. So I took one of the last remaining good ones, which was uh, Justin Herbert. So now, because all these quarterbacks are getting taken, a lot of value has gotten pushed down. So it looks like I'm going to have a shot at either DeAndre Hopkins, Calvin Ridley, DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, or Justin Jefferson, who are all available. So wow. I'll get one of those guys. So I'll start my team in a 2QB league with Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Jonathan Taylor, and then one of those elite receivers. It's a pretty good looking team. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, like, I, I think Lamar Jackson's going to go crazy this year with everything he has going on. So, I mean, if let's just exclude him for a second with the way the setup is of that league, because I think it's kind of still hard to take Lamar Jackson, you know, as the number one pick in, in a super flex type league. But Mahomes should probably be the number one player off the board in a super flex. That's just mm -hmm. my opinion. I think that for Herbert to fall to the third round or whatever you said, that's way too far down there also. So it seems like you're getting good value for people not taking quarterback quickly enough. So yeah, the, a lot the people in this league have yet to play a two QB league where there's not a restraint on when you can take the second quarterback. So they don't really know how to handle it. I was one pick away from getting Lamar Jackson. In other words, I would have had Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and then you know an elite receiver or running back. So I wish I had that. That would have been incredible in a two QB league. But yeah, I, I have one league that I did this year. I'm not doing much fantasy football, but in a super flex league, I started Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. So that was my exact start. I love it. I like, well, well, hold on. Before see, uh, you have another pick come up, why don't you just finish off this bottom range? What do you like down here? Yeah, so, uh, okay, so I like Joaquin Neiman. I, I think he's perfectly contrarian. He does have some issues with the short game, and he, he has general issues with just being inconsistent, but that's a product of him just being a young golfer. Like, I'm not – 
I mean, I guess, you know, listen, Morikawa and Hovland aren't exactly as inconsistent as Neiman, but I do think he has the upside, I guess is my bigger point. And he is going to be one of the lower owned guys. Uh, I'm a little worried that guys like us are, are, are talking about him. Maybe he gets pushed up, but he's not going to get pushed up past like 16, 17%. It's just not going to happen. So if he's 15, 16%, that's still a little high, but in the scheme of things, it's really low. It's, it'll be, it'll end up being one of the lower guys. So I like him as a contrarian play. Um, I'm not going to be on Sergio because he looks to be really popular. I will probably, my shot is going to, first of all, I agree on EVR. He's not like, he was number one T to green last week. Don't care. Not going to be on him. A lot of people will be. I'd just rather find some, some leverage. I might take a shot at a guy who's not playing well. He might be the lowest owned guy in this entire thing. Ultimately, it's Stuart Sink. He is, he can be a good ball striker. He can be a good closer. L listen, again, I'm talking more GPPs, bigger tournaments potentially. Mm -hmm. But if I have to pick a guy down here outside of Joaquin Neiman, it's going to be a guy that's contrarian. And I still think Stuart Sink has some game, even though he hasn't shown it in the last few months. I totally agree with you. I think I, I've, if I'm going to do some big GPP tournaments, I'm going to play some Stuart Sink. He's just he does seem to be the right now the lowest owned guy. That could change. Let's see where that goes. But if he remains the lowest owned, he does not in great form, which is scary. But you know, with from April to end of June, he's you know gained his ball striking was top ten probably in the tour. So he's cooled off now. But he's we've seen in recently that he's capable of turning it on. So from a GPP perspective, I'll definitely sprinkle a few shares of him in there to get different. I actually think Sergio could be interesting. I do want to see where that ownership number gets to. If it stays at 20 or, or below, I will play Sergio. If it starts getting up to 25 and above, that's when I'll pivot because that's not a number I want with, with Sergio. So let's see where that ends up on Thursday. And finally, I'm with you on Joaquin Neiman. He does seem to be getting talked about you know, in the industry some. So, um, you know, if that ownership number rises, I will fall off. But if it stays below, you know, in the teens or below – Definitely at this price is another way for you to build some different lineups and a guy that is certainly capable of scoring on DK. Okay, so you guys can help me with my next pick because I'm on the clock. And by the way, we have a couple questions. First of all, Ivan, thank you for saying good luck. We have some cash game questions, one from Coach and one from Thomas Holman. So um, maybe after this soliloquy I go through with um, my pick, we can talk about uh, cash game strategy, that type of thing. Okay, so I have either Najee Harris, I hate that Pittsburgh offensive line, or Justin Jefferson, love his upside. But running back's going to be really thin, okay, obviously after this round, after the next round. So knowing that I'll probably be thin at running back, do I go with Najee Harris or do I just take Justin Jefferson? What do we think? Let's uh, start opinion, with you, Joel, and then Spencer. My opinion is take the running back. I find it a 10-team league. Oh, I'm wrong. He got taken. He got uh, taken. Forget it. You're right. It didn't make sense that he was there. See, this is what I get for doing a golf show and a draft at the same time. So I'm going to take Justin Jefferson. Um, uh, but then can you guys just talk about real quick uh, your your cash game strategy for this week? Yeah, Spencer, kick us off. Yeah, I mean, I think like as I was saying a little bit earlier on it, like obviously we want guys that can make birdies. I mean, I think that that's for a no cut type tournament like this, you're going to need that. But Ownership goes completely out the window, as I said. Like, it really doesn't matter what anybody's owned. If you like Rory, play Rory. If you like Xander, play Xander. If you like Sungjae and Scheffler, play them. Uh, I'm still going because I still think that you're going to try to... I think picking the winner is going to help. So I think a guy like Rom makes a lot of sense across the board. I think if you start a lineup with, you know, Rom, Sungjae, Scheffler, I mean, I think that's a pretty good start for me. Like, that's... I don't care where their ownership is and that's more of what I'm going to do with it and just try to find birdie makers around them. Yeah. Ignore everything we're saying about ownership and everything for cash, because if you have a, if you have a duplicate lineup and cash, it's fine. You both win. Nobody, you win the same amount. It doesn't make a difference. So the ownership stuff only matters for big tournaments for cash lineups. I wouldn't even look at ownership. I would just go pick the guys you like the most. Uh, and if that's the right guys, you'll cash. So that's how I would think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also guys, listen, we broke down the field. Uh, it's a different week. It is very important to be aware of the types of tournaments you're playing. That's how you pick your lineup. So keep that in mind when you're building rosters this week. But before we wrap up, let's head to the betting markets. See Real that. quick. Yeah, the clock's still on me. I should have picked by now. Okay, new analysis. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire or Justin Jefferson? Same argument as before. Go, Clyde quick. Justin Jefferson. But I, I'm, I, I, is it full PPR? It's not. It's half PPR? It's zero PPR, standard. Ugh. 
then my argument changes because I'm the king of taking wide receivers. I don't like Edwards Hilaire. Um, yeah, I don't like him either, but I, he's like the last good running back available. I no, that's not him. true. That's not true. I I um, I'd be cornering the market on Kansas City because I have Mahomes. I don't know Which if that's a good or not. Every time the Kansas City scores, you're scoring. I basically have it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a standard league, a lot changes with it. I mean, running back becomes a better play, but I also don't think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is necessarily that like prototypical running back in a standard league. I agree with you there. Uh, okay, carry on. Sorry. I guess I would pick Edwards-Hilaire, though, if, if it's a standard league. The last thing I say is one of my fantasy football theories is always take the Andy Reid running back. He always ends up being good, whether it's Brian Westbrook or whoever he has back there, that guy ends up being good. So – I always like whoever Andy Reid has a running back, I'm taking. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Back to the betting market. The the juice Spencer is on a scorching hot streak. Uh, he's three in a row. We're picking another outright, Spencer. Who is the four in a row going to be? Talk to me. Who do you like this week? So I'm going to give both markets. I'm going to give with the 72 holes uh, of the tournament, I'm going to give with starting strokes in it. And with the starting strokes being included on it. This is going to be a very minimal week. Like you can't, I'm under the belief that it's going to be one of these guys at the top of the leaderboard that takes home the tour championship. I don't want to have some exposure because I pride myself. Like that's one of the things is yes, I've hit three outrights in a row and yes, I've hit nine outrights on the season. I'm not a person that has a ton of exposure to my outright card. Like I'm picking very few guys. I'm trying to usually be at the back end of the board and try to find value that way with it. Uh, so these are going to be smaller bets. These are going to probably, I usually bet to win eight, nine or 10 units on most of my plays that I bet, uh, for outright bets for the tour championship. I'm going to be betting to win three and a half units. So I'm essentially going to try to have roughly a unit in play, uh, for the, that market. And then a unit for the other, it's just a little bit of a different week. That's more exposure than I'd care to have for the outright market. But that's how I'm going to play it this week is just two separate tournaments. Cause theoretically you could hit both of them still with it. None of the money is dead in it. So I got Rom at five to one. That was at a William Hill sports book. Uh, I think Rom ends up taking this home. That's my preferred pick. And then I also took Finau at eight to one. I just think that that's a good starting total for him. I think if he can turn around the par five scoring, he gives himself a chance. Are you giving uh, with or without strokes? That is uh, with starting strokes. And then without starting strokes, Sung JM 35 to 1, Scotty Scheffler 25 to 1, Victor Hovland 28 to 1, and Hideki 35 to 1. I considered Joaquin Neiman. I, I will say uh, it came down to Neiman or, or Hideki. Nick and I were talking about it on the show. He kind of convinced me to take Hideki with it. So uh, I, it will be unfortunate if Neiman is the one that ends up winning and I break the streak by not taking him. But that was the last guy that missed the card just for uh, the sake of, uh, you know, transparency on this. I like it. I like it. See, who are you looking at for the outright market? So honestly, I haven't really. Okay, so I don't want to take a guy because I do think John Rahm's going to win it. I don't want to take a guy with the starting strokes. So that's just, I'm just not interested in doing that because the value is just sapped. You know, there's really only like maybe six or seven. You can make an argument for six, seven, maybe eight, but really the arguments realistically for like four or five guys. So I'm not, I'm not going to make a pick there without starting strokes. I, I like the Sungjae. So I'm, I'm looking at DraftKings right now. So you're right. So, well, Sungjae's 30 to one on DraftKings, but if you get him at 30 or 35 to one, again, this is without starting strokes. Uh, I like that quite a bit. I'll give you maybe two other guys. Uh, yeah, Xander, 11 to 1. That, that's pretty crazy. It tells you what the market feels about Xander without strutting strokes. He's the second guy in line uh, to win there. Um, I'll go Scotty Scheffler at 20 to 1. Again, this is without starting strokes. And then if I'm going to pick somebody that's left field, really left field, Jason Kokrak at 45 to 1. I like it. I got three plays. I'm going without chokes as well. Uh, my, Well, you know what? I, just, I have four plays without chokes. The first is going to be Hideki at 35 to 1. I like Cam Smith at 30 to 1. I'm going to go with Colin Morikawa at 22 to 1. And my final play here without strokes is Brooks Kepka at 20 to 1. I like that. That's, that's going to be my our, our outright markets, and we're going to – 
close this week with some first round leaders. Spencer, who do you got here? Yeah, I mean, so we're not getting some of these outlandish prices that we get on most weeks where we can take a bunch of 70 to, you know, 150 to one guys. At least that's the range I prefer to be in. So these will be small sprinkles for me. Uh, I am going to bet it though. So I, I have Sergio at 40 to one, Joaquin Neiman at 45 to one, Sungjae at 30 to one, Hideki at 35 to one, and Victor Hovland at 25 to one. Uh, those will be much smaller first round leader bets. And, and the first round leader bets for me are always small to begin with, but these will be much smaller. Even with that being said, just with the prices I'm getting on them. Hey, Spencer, what, what were the guys you had again for first round leader? Uh, Sergio, Joaquin Neiman, Victor Hovland, Sungjae, and Hideki. Gotcha. Oh, and what was Hideki's number? Because he's one of mine and I don't see the numbers on DraftKings. Uh, 35 to 1 is what gotcha. I got. Okay. Can you tell me, uh, see, I'm going to have to give away the breaking news here. Joel, you go for, You go first. All right. I just have a couple. My first round leaders, I'm going to start with Colin Morikawa, 80 to 1. Starting way back, he's going to have to have a monster day. Um, I like Jordan Spieth at 35 to 1 and I like Cam Smith at 25 to 1. Okay. I guess I should say too. Mine is with um, without the starting scores. Yeah, that's what. So I that's why my numbers are a little bit different. Yeah. Can you tell me what Scheffler and Brooks Kepka's numbers are without starting strokes as a first round leader? Well, yes, I can. You said Kepka and who else? Scheffler. Kepka without strokes is twenty to one, and Scheffler is also twenty to one. And what's Kokrak? Kokrak is ooh, 45 to 1. Okay, so I'm going to do Hideki at 35 to 1. I'm only going to give three because there's only so many people in this tournament, right? Um, Kokrak at 45 to 1. And I'll just give one more. Uh, the breaking news. Your first round leader without starting strokes on Thursday night after the first round of the Tour Championship is none other than Scotty Scheffler at 20 to 1. You're welcome, America. I like it. Let's get rich. Uh, listen, guys, we're on a heater, so it's time to start following these plays because we're cashing, seems like, every week. So if you want to make some money, make the money with us. Come back next week. Let us know how much you made. Uh, we're having a lot of fun doing it, and we love interacting with you guys. So get in the chat. We're answering all your questions throughout the show. Uh, good luck this week. It's the championship. It should be a fun week to watch. And uh, see, is there one last thing? Yeah, well, there's there's two last things. One is make sure you hit the like button. Somebody uh, up above uh, hit that for us. I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, but anyway, hit the like button on YouTube. Make sure you support us at Windaily Sports on Twitter. And of course, at T Off Sports, at Draftmaster Flex, at C Najad. We post a lot of stuff. Hopefully, it's good sports information, sports, uh, but also uh, entertaining as well. I think I, I, I try to kind of accomplish uh, both of those things. I think we all do. So with that, um, there's just one other thing to say. Um, Spencer, good luck on four in a row and sports. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.